Welcome to Creekside Chats with successful real estate investors, brought to you by Steve Talker Capital, promoting prosperity and harmony to help you flourish in all areas of life. Join in as we explore the motivations and goals of real estate investors and how their ability to invest abundantly has provided them with the time and freedom to contribute to the world in a creative and thoughtful way. Now, please welcome your host, Dr. Allen. Welcome to Creekside Chats. I'm your host, Dr. Allen. This is your first time tuning in. I hope you find great value. For you enlightened investors returning, I'm delighted to be back with you again today. Enlightened investors, do you want to know how to reduce the risk on your investments, discover how to profit from your mistakes, and how to pinpoint the troublesome small stuff before they lead to big issues? With us today is an attorney and real estate investor who can help with all of these issues and more. Please welcome to the show, Jeff Love. So much for having me. Let's talk about syndication and the issues of securities. The big thing to think about is really people get held up on what is a security. And really any time that you are selling equity or debt of something of value in a, in a company, a promissory note to a passive investor or a passive participant who is not actively involved in that company, you're selling the security. So not just your share in Apple computer or Dell, Microsoft. If we were to start a janitorial company and we were to issue a couple shares to a third party, that's a security. If we have a promissory note and we're, we're syndicating portions of that note to different parties, that's a security. So it, really to think from a macro level, if you have someone that's not actively involved in your business, real estate or otherwise, you need to be aware of the securities laws and make sure, making sure that you're in compliance with both federal and state rules. So a, an active partner who is actually going to participate in it is going to have a share in that business, but that is not a security. Is that correct? Well, it depends. If there, there are two or three investors and you're all starting the business together, you're not issuing stock to a third party or a third party investor. It, typically you run into it when you have that passive party. Now for good practice, if you have a large real estate company and you've got you know, 10 or 12 partners and they're all actively participating, you're still issuing stock. You still want to follow securities laws. In practical terms, most people are not gonna do the filing when there's two partners and they're both participating. Although, we recommend you always comply with filings. You always file for a foreign D. You always file with, with California. Just practically speaking, most people are not going to go through the effort, time, and expense if you're all actively participating because you don't have that same risk and exposure where if you were to have a passive investor that's just giving you your money and saying, you run with it, you, you operate this real estate transaction, and you give me a return on my money. To be clear, you always should fight. You always should make the proper filings. It's just most often you get people doing it more often and willing to comply when you do have those passive investors. So your suggestion is be safe rather than sorry. And if there is a question whether it's passive or active, to be certain to just go ahead and do the filing. Absolutely. Talk to us about a startup business and what it is that you look for in your purchase agreements. Agreement, you there's trade offs. So, a lot of times, if we're talking about a smaller residential property, maybe you might be buying a single family home or a duplex, you still have the same concerns as if you were to acquire a 
50-unit apartment building, but there's a fine line between scaring off the seller or buyer versus protecting yourself. But in all cases, there's a couple key areas you at least want to read and be familiar with. And one of them is a limitation of liability, especially if you are the seller um, or, or the buyer, it's just, you're on different sides of it. And what that is, I'm selling my property to Alan. I don't want to be responsible for lingering issues three, five, seven years in the future. So what I'm going to put in my purchase agreement is say, buyer, Alan, you're going to do all of your due diligence. You're going to do your environmental inspection. You're going to look at the tenants and except for the limited representations that we're agreeing to in our purchase agreement, we are limiting seller's liability. Now, whether that's 2%, 5%, 10% of the transaction, and that can vary depending on how big of the deal is and the leverage between the parties, you're, you're not going to have the right to pursue me for any other breaches of this purchase agreement. That is my maximum liability. So for example, if this was a $5 million purchase and we limited my liability to $250,000, that's all that I'm liable for. You'll often see variations of that as well, where there might be a bucket and a basket and I don't want you to come after me for little, little small claims. So we may say anything below $20,000, you're not gonna be able to pursue me for that either. So it's between $25,000 and $250,000. And that's my exposure. And that's important for the buyer because I may not know everything about the property. So I really want to do my due diligence because I know once I acquire it and once I close, even if I have $500,000 in damages because the groundwater is contaminated because there's a gas station behind my apartment building, I can't pursue the seller for that. All I have is I have $250,000 based on the representations. Is there a way for the buyer to breach that agreement four or five years down the road? Or is it just out of the realm of legalities? When you agree to the limitation of liability, both parties are in agreement that buyer, I don't have the right to pursue you outside of that area, that 225 to 250. And it gives the seller peace of mind because they're able to move on to another asset. The buyer's willing to take that risk to acquire the property as part of the negotiation. One of the other areas to look for that's related to that is what are the representations and warranties in this purchase agreement? Seller, are they say, are they representing that they're unaware of any environmental risks, any hazards, any underground storage tanks? Are they representing that they have title to the property? Are they aware of any mechanics liens? Various types of representations, which again vary depending on, on the transaction. There may be something specific and that's one of the areas where the buyer is able to really get the seller to agree to certain things. Is this a property that doesn't have significant access and we don't want to rely on the title company? Are we asking the buyer to represent that the, the property has access to certain utilities? Has Have there been any lawsuits? Are there any pending lawsuits? Are they aware of any, any condemnation or eminent domain claims? How about rights of first refusal have they granted that to anyone? We want to make sure that we're aware of these certain things because once we close, if there's that limitation, I'm only just able to pursue the seller for breach of these certain representations. And it's really where we know, we were able to get inside what's in the seller's head and have them promise and represent to us as the buyer certain things. And on the flip side, if I'm the seller, I'm willing to give these because I know about my property, but 
I may want to limit them to certain extents. I may have just acquired the property or I have, it's really run by my property manager and I'm not aware of any environmental concerns. So I may limit that to my knowledge, whether I'm an LLC or an individual and I'll put my name to Jeff Love's knowledge, I'm not aware of anything. So by chance, if my property manager was aware of something that doesn't get picked up in these representations, it's, it's solely to my knowledge. As I'm thinking of this, I've done a number of bank-owned properties as a broker, and the banks always have a very lengthy addendum, and those are exactly the kinds of things that they are putting in their addendum. I'm thinking that the banks are providing a very good checklist for any seller to go by before even going to their attorney. They could have a pretty good idea of the things that they want and need in their purchase agreements. Talk to us about the hateful eight, the mistakes first-time founders make when starting a business. There are a lot. Mistakes, don't want to get off the wrong foot. Every investor is going to make mistakes. And that's things in turning that we see. The key really is with, with, with these mistakes is to learn from it. And that's, that's, another, that's probably the first mistake right there. It's a funny mistake of mistake, but I had many investors you know, were they may be developing a property and they're not on top of their contractor and if there's contractor delays or they didn't negotiate the agreement with the contractor yet they didn't learn from that mistake and they did it again in a subsequent project so the, the first thing i think people need to learn is it, it's not everyone makes mistakes it, it's when you do that and it's not just real estate it's when you make that it's what do you do with that mistake do you do you learn from it and do you improve or do you, do you keep making the same mistake over and over again. And with real estate, really learning from that mistake, improving and moving on is one of the big things that we see. Another one of the big mistakes are really diving in before you understand what you're doing. You turn on TV, especially HGTV, and you see these house flipping shows and you think, I'm gonna be a real estate investor and I'm gonna start flipping houses. I can make all this money. It doesn't seem like much work, but the investor and the flipper, they don't really understand what's involved with that in, in timing and the carrying cost of the money and brokerage commissions and all the hitting costs that you really don't see when you're jumping into these projects. So it's really understanding them when, before you're jumping into a project and looking at it from a bird's eye view and understanding, I'm going to acquire this property and do this work and really outlining underwriting what you're going to do. I've been, another variation mistake from there is similar, but not having the right team in place. We see this a lot where investors, I'm going to jump in again, keeping with the flipping example, I'm going to, I'm going to flip this property, but I don't have a good real estate broker to come and sell the property. I don't have a, relation, a good relationship with a contractor. I bought this property, but now I'm spending a month of carrying costs before my work is even started. I may not have a good accountant that's able to save me money or they may have set me up with you know, a wrong entity. My, my lawyer may have put me, said I should hold title as an LLC, but in states like California with an LLC, especially with a flipping business, you may be better off with a different type of entity or a limited partnership where you can save thousands of dollars on franchise taxes. So really thinking through and having the right advisors and right team in place, because it's, you know, everyone happens to me too. There are questions, you know, even as a real estate attorney, I don't know the answer that I'm able to bounce off of a partner or a colleague. And without that team, I'm not able to be as efficient and providing as good advice to clients. So no shame, no one can do it all themselves. Really having that good 
team in place. One more big mistake that I will mention is trying to cut costs out that at the outset and thinking, I don't have the money now, I'll do it later. One of the big things that we do is we plan, we help clients structure, but it's also fixing mistakes in the past. I just helped a client get out of a construction defect lawsuit because they, again, keeping with the fix and flip example, theirs wasn't exactly the same, but they went off and did a project in their own name. They didn't think they needed any liability protection. They had a small insurance policy, but it was a big project and the construction defect claim was in excess of a million dollars and it was against this individual. So really making sure that you've lined up these things at the outset, and maybe it is a little bit more money up front. Maybe you're getting a biggest, bigger insurance policy to protect yourself. Maybe you are talking, spending an hour or two of a time with an attorney or another advisor or your accountant about setting up some type of business to make sure that you are protected when you acquire these assets, to make sure that you're not creating more exposure and risk to yourself than needed. Any other thoughts for the beginner investor? Those are really the big ones. The, the smaller ones are ones I don't bring up as often, but they're often overlooked. Going back, so let's hit you know a, a new investor. We talked about a purchase agreement. We talked about the big items, not reading your purchase agreement, not focusing on the smaller issues. For example, in your purchase agreement, you often have a notice section. It may seem kind of boilerplate, not a big deal. It's, it's, it's how we give each other notices. But we've had so many issues, and not just us, attorneys in general, because clients don't send notices the right way, and it becomes important. Your notice section may say, you know, maybe it's not email, maybe it's certified mail, maybe it's overnight courier, and maybe it doesn't list, you know, maybe it's one of these. And if you don't send your notice the correct way to the opposing party, the notice isn't sufficient. So in our real estate transaction, when we're about to waive our due diligence, and our money is going to become hard and non-refundable if we don't terminate the transaction in the right way to the right parties and to the right addresses in our purchase agreement that notice could not be valid and you could have just gone hard and cost yourself a lot of money just by reading it by not reading or failing to abide by a provision that seems boilerplate and standard but notice it, notice provisions aren't the same for every type of purchase agreement and even your even form purchase agreements in california our association of realtor forms or our commercial real estate forms each agreement's different so not only reading the agreement at the outset i think is a mistake people make but then just filing it away and not ever pulling it out and say, I'm just going to send notice via email is really pulling out your agreements and making sure that you're abiding by those terms. The, the last two to cover to really get our eight is kind of skimping on due diligence. As an attorney, we may not get all the way involved in the, the due diligence, especially if you're a sophisticated investor, you may be saving costs, you may be doing it yourself, but really making sure that you're hitting all aspects of due diligence. I've had a lot of investors, especially with multifamily properties where they're looking at the rent roll, they're looking at the leases, they're looking at environmental, but then they, they neglect to get an estoppel certificate. What that is, that's a certificate that the tenant signs certifying to you as the buyer or as a lender that the lease is in full force and effect, that the rent has been paid up to X date, that there's a security deposit on file, there's no side agreements. And what that does is that it stops the name, the tenant from denying certain things. And for an example, maybe the landlord hadn't, you know, maybe a written agreement they forgot about where they granted the tenant a two-year extension. 
And if you're buying this property with the intent to increase rents, to increase your cash flow, and you may close and never know about this agreement, and then the tenant hands you the agreement and says, well, now you're stuck. You have to honor the agreement because it was signed. You may have a claim against the seller, but the seller may have, they may be hard to pursue. They may have been an entity distributed all that, all their money. So you're incurring top costs, maybe legal costs, administrative headache to really pursue this, where if you had the certificate from the onset, you would have either known about the side agreement or if the tenant disclosed it to you, you could have addressed that prior to the closing. So that is one of the agreements you want to see what's in the lease. And then actually just reading the underlying documents. I have a lot of times clients will, they'll, they'll get a lease, they'll skim it, but they won't really understand all the provisions. And this same case for industrial properties, multifamily, retail, if you don't understand the provisions in the agreement, you really can't do a good job of underwriting it. Do you understand how the rent is, is increased? Is it through the consumer price index? Is it a fixed increase? Is it some other formula? How long does the tenant have to give you notices? How many does the tenant have options to extend? So while these may be common sense, and that's why I call them the, the secondary four of the eight, because they it's a notice provision. It's of course I'll read the lease. But as your new investor, you may not go into the same level of detail, or you may think you understand the provision, but you don't. So it's there is no harm, and it goes back to the point about having your team in place. Do you have a great real estate broker that can help you understand this? Do you have an attorney? Do you have an accountant, an insurance broker that can help you understand? And even if you do, it always helps to you know, bounce questions off of people and have a, have a second read to make sure you understand what you're getting when you're acquiring the property. Also, in, in conjunction with the notices, I'm also thinking that the critical aspects of dates, the difference between time is of the essence and just a regular date. In terms of times is of the essence, what do you recommend in terms of that, in terms of settlement dates as opposed to due diligence dates? If, if you're the buyer, it typically does more. I'd say it does more harm than good. But it depends on the situation. It may, maybe you are coming out of an exchange and you want to really hold your seller to these dates. What Time of the Essence does, it says parties are agreeing that the dates we have in here are important dates and we are, we're going to abide by those dates. If we're a couple of days late, it, it, it could be a breach of the agreement. It's not get to it when you get to it. It's these dates are important. And the reason you often see it in real estate purchase agreements is because the seller wants to hold the buyer hard and fast to the due diligence date. They wanna know if you're going forward or not. With residential transactions, if you're waiving a loan contingency or appraisal, the seller wants to make sure you're abiding by those dates. If you're the buyer, you, like I said, you may be coming out of an exchange for a residential transaction. You may have maybe negotiated with a tenant up front and you wanna get them into the space. So you wanna be able to close on time. I don't necessarily negotiate the time of the essence clause, but what I will do with clients is really make sure that they understand the dates in the, in the transaction. If you have 30 days for due diligence, making sure you can get your due diligence done on time, especially in a real estate syndication. If you are agreeing to make your money and go hard and non-refundable in 30 days, do you have all your ducks in a row, so to speak? Beyond side doing your due diligence, are you comfortable with your ability to get debt and commercial financing? Are you going to be able to pitch this deal and actually raise money and get firm commitments from your investors to be able to acquire the property by this date? Because what, what often happens is you'll come close to this due diligence date and or you'll waive it and then 
you won't be able to raise money from your investors in time between then and the closing. And you, you get in this difficult situation where either the seller won't agree to extend the closing or, the, or they will try to extract concessions, often additional money to extend it. And you're in a difficult place because you can't close because you haven't raised money from your investors because you didn't have enough time in your due diligence period, but you went ahead and waived it so you didn't lose the deal. So really thinking about everything that needs to be done over the life of this transaction from LOI to closing and making sure that you have left yourself enough time with dates, especially now with the current economic climate and pandemic that we're in, is making sure that you're able to get everything done. You may not be able to access certain units of a multifamily property. It may take you longer to get an inspection or contact the city about permits. So really building that into your offers and your dates and maybe even building in extensions so that you're able to get everything done on time so you're able to comply with that time is of the essence provision. What are your three words of advice to a new syndicator? That is a good question. Three words. I'm going to say, don't be scared. And that give you the more words to explain it is, it is difficult being a real estate investor. People do it. I, I myself am one as well. So I've seen both sides of it. And it's not only difficult to jump in and initially get your feet wet, especially if you bought a property yourself to really take that jump to syndication and bringing on investors, but you will never learn and you will never get the experience if you don't do it. The word of caution is really thinking about the process from a bird's eye view and getting that team in place and getting everything ready so you aren't scared and you're able to move forward because you're comfortable that you have this team to rely on or you have a partner that has more experience or you have other team members you can rely on for advice so that you're not scared in the tr transaction and you're able to learn as you go and become a more successful and inexperienced real estate syndicator. Jeff, thank you for sharing your time with us and your expertise and wisdom. My pleasure, thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us on Creekside Chats with successful real estate investors, brought to you by Steed Talker Capital. For more information, as well as access to our free ebook on enhancing your well-being through real estate investing, be sure to connect with us at steedtalker.com. As part of our efforts to make the world a better place, Steed Talker Capital contributes to activities and organizations committed to better understand the equine and enhance the humane treatment of horses worldwide. Steed Talker Capital, working for a world where all creatures, great and small, flourish abundantly. Connect with us at steedtalker.com.